Hi, everyone. I know it's been a while since Claire and I recorded a conversation, but here's one about one of our favorite poets, Adam Zagajewski. At the start of this recording, you'll hear that Claire has a new album out, which we encourage you all to listen to. In addition to that, I have a new book out in a few weeks. I'm rather loath to self-publicize, but if you wanted to check out my book, I've put some links in the show notes so you can find out how. And just to give you a taste of my new poems, here's one of them that you'll find in the new book. It's called The Happiest Day of Your Life. You wake up and hear rain. You wake up and think there's not enough rain. Not enough songs about rain or memories of rain. Of being numbed or warmed by rain. You wake up. Your eyes are open. Lilies in a moss-green bowl. Elms through the window moving their hands like cellists. Books exist, and paintings, and pillows, Blue Mountain and Saddle Mountain, Abundance Creek, Alpha Centauri, Delft. The woman in your dream was putting down a crate of oranges, but then you woke up, remembering there is custard, there is Verdi, there is smoke-filled late fall air, and even joy in what it feels like to grieve, wanting to sleep instead of bear what you must, like finishing the best book in the world. You wake up wanting to try. You try. Here in the swirling eddies, in the dark river of time and decay. There is rain. There is this day. There is this day and no other. Praise it with trumpets and zithers. Praise it however you can. So like I say, you can check out my new book and Claire's new album in the links provided. And I hope you enjoy this conversation about the poetry of Adam Zagajewski. First, we need to tell the good people what's new in your life. My second album is out. And <laughs> I, I didn't rehearse this. I don't have the terms. What's your sales pitch? Oh, no. It's very beautiful. You should all listen to it. It's Thank very, you. very beautiful. Thank you for stopping me. <laughs> I... <laughs> we could describe it if you want, or we could leave it tantalizingly mysterious. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> I changed my mind fast. If you want some massive amounts of beauty in your life, go listen to it. What's it called and where can they find it? It is called The Insomniac's Songbook, and it's available everywhere. Apple, Spotify. And they're mostly ambient slash electronic with one wild, one wild loud <laughs> song on it. Um, yeah, <laughs> that is <laughs> all I'll say. <laughs> that's all you want to say? I didn't practice. It's better that way. I did try to, I had been listening to a lot of Brian Eno, his ambient music, and I really, really, with all my heart, tried to tap into that calm, positive energy. I hate to say positive energy. <laughs> I know, it it's sounds strange. awful. <laughs> We're going to talk about that, right? Like t today, actually, in our conversation, yeah. positive energy. You have a slight, I don't know, trepidation about it. Well, yeah, because it just sounds cheesy. And I think it's extremely difficult to make things that sound positive or even worse, happy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's uh, it's hard to do. But when it's successful, it's that's the kind of art you treasure the most. That's most life-saving.
Life-saving. I think that's a good way to describe your album. It's that beautiful. So you should all go listen to it. Thanks. <laughs> Nervous laugh? Yeah, I wasn't referring to my album when I was talking no, about life-saving. No, that's what I'm here for. Okay. <laughs> Are Zagayevsky's poems happy? Yes. You say it's hard to write positively. They are happy. Is he a happy poet? I would definitely say so. He has the kind of happiness in his poems that that knows death, which is one of our favorite quotes from the book The Plague by Camus. Camus. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> How do you say his name? It's okay. You don't have to nail the French accent. Camus. <laughs> Sounds like a hipster clothing brand. It does. Umlauts galore. Yeah. Anywho. He's happy against all odds. Yeah, he, he has every reason to not be happy. Start us off with a poem. We're just going to read some of our favorite poems. We're not going to analyze them. We're just going to read them and spoon over them. And um, Do you want to start with one? Here is a perfect poem for what I was just talking about. It has the kind of happiness that definitely knows, knows darkness too, but is choosing to be happy. It's called Try to Praise the Mutilated World. Try to praise the mutilated world. Remember June's long days and wild strawberries, drops of rosé wine, the nettles that methodically overgrow the abandoned homesteads of exiles. You must praise the mutilated world. He watched the stylish yachts and ships. One of them had a long trip ahead of it. While salty oblivion awaited others. You've seen the refugees going nowhere. You've heard the executioners sing joyfully. You should praise the mutilated world. Remember the moments when we were together in a white room and the curtain fluttered. Return in thought to the concert where music flared. You gathered acorns in the park in autumn and leaves eddied over the earth's scars. Praise the mutilated world. And the gray feather a thrush lost. And the gentle light that strays and vanishes and returns. Yeah, actually, this is a poem that I found on the Poetry Foundation website one night when I was, I couldn't sleep because I was sick, I had a fever, I think I had strep throat, and I was, I don't know, I was feeling pretty miserable. And I remember, <laughs> I remember googling life-affirming poems because <laughs> I was needing some affirmation. And yeah, this one actually came up, and how could you not read a poem with a title like that? Yeah, it's beautiful. I just, I love the repetition. I think it takes a good poet to have the courage to repeat a, repeat a line. And it's this insistence. It's almost like he is actively trying to convince himself too. It's like, mm -hmm. I, my mind keeps straying to the darkness and I want to, I, I want to describe the pain and suffering. Yeah. I think it's tempting as a poet to dwell on the dark because it's easier. To describe and well describe those kinds of things because I don't know I guess it's more um, riveting. <laughs> it's a bit easier to get people's attention as humans and as artists. Yeah, I think we should question that desire. And he, I, this poem really drives that point home for me. Yeah, I've been thinking for years about these lines about the remember the moments when we were together in a white room and the curtain fluttered. That's, I adore that part. That's my favorite part in the poem because he lists all these things, sinking ships, executioners who never have to face justice, exiles, you know. And what does he have to offer 
to compensate for all that, a, a, a moment in a white room when the curtain fluttered. It doesn't make logical sense, but intuitively it's so clear that the white room and the curtain fluttering wins. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That it is actually enough to recompense or to compensate or it somehow makes life worth living. It's a, it's a counterbalance. And it's so small. You know, it's, like, yeah. it's almost nothing. A, a curtain fluttering. It's almost nothing. And yet it seems to, it seems to be enough to justify praising a world that's full of. I know, and it is in so many, so many ways a very unpoetic image, isn't it? Just a yeah, white room so with a plain. curtain. It's so plain. He could have really, as we, as a lot of us do, who are writers or artists, we're tempted to really milk a moment like this. You know what I mean? Right. If I'm writing a poem called To Praise the Mutilated World, I would really be tempted to pull out gorgeous images. Yeah, I know. I'd be writing about all the berries. And all all the Beethovens. Yeah. And he could do it. (laughs) But he's a very, um, I was going to say modest poet. He is modest. I like that word. His poetry doesn't try too hard to impress you, which is so impressive. I know. It's very beautiful without him falling prey to too many (laughs) gorgeous images. It's not like poets can't do that. It really worked for Keats. (laughs) But I do admire that he can do the opposite. No, he's not exactly doing the opposite, but... Mm. A colleague of mine was a student of his and tells this story. So this isn't really my story to tell, but apparently Zagajewski was relatively new to the United States teaching a graduate poetry workshop in Texas. And his students were, you know, I suppose slightly typical, jaded, postmodern American young adults who were writing poems full of critiques about, you know, capitalism or suburbia and how ugly suburbia was, how monotone it was, and how devoid of beauty it was. These are all valid points. It is monotone and ugly and devoid of beauty. Uninspired. <laughs> it's completely uninspired. So they were writing these poems, and I think he didn't quite understand what they were describing. He would ask them questions like, so what do you mean? So everybody gets their own house? And they would say, yeah. And the gov- he said, the government can't take it away. And they said no, and it's and it's not an apartment building; it's a house. And they said, "Yeah, it's a house." And he said, "And there's also like land around it that's yours, and you can do whatever you want with it." And they said, "Yeah." And eventually, he kind of got it. He kind of understood what their complaint was. But this conversation revealed to the students that they were kind of spoiled brats, you know. And the story ends with him saying, "Okay, I get it, but shouldn't poetry praise?" Was his response to them? Shouldn't poetry praise? That's so amazing. It's a good story. But I forgot about that last part. (laughs) And that's so perfect. For some reason, right now, people, and me, uh, I think is pretty ingrained, unfortunately. Our first impulse is to be the one who's best at finding fault. And that doesn't make very beautiful art. Let's read another poem. Do you have one that you want to read? You, we got to read that one. What's it called? It's called Speak Softly. This is called Speak Softly. Speak softly. You're older than the one you were so long. You're older than yourself, and yet you still don't know what absence, poetry, and gold are. Rusty water swept the street. A brief storm shook this supine, sleepy city. 
Each storm is a valediction. Scores of photographers seem to swirl above us, catching in a flash our moments of panic and fear. You know what morning is. Despair so fierce it chokes the heart's rhythm and the future. You've cried among strangers in a modern store where deft coins make, make the rounds. You've seen Venice and Siena and, in paintings on the streets, doleful young Madonnas who wish they were ordinary girls dancing at carnivals. You've also seen small towns, not beautiful at all, old people worn by pain and time, eyes shone in medieval icons, the eyes of swarthy saints, wild animals' bright eyes. You pick dry pebbles from the beach at La Galère, La Galère, and suddenly you felt as fond of them, of them and the slender pine and everyone else there and the sea, which is powerful indeed, but very lonely, as if we all were orphans from the same home, parted for good and granted only momentary visits in the chilly prisons of the present. Speak softly. You are no longer young. Revelation must make peace with weeks of Lent. You must choose, surrender, stall for time. Hold long talks with envoys from dark, dry countries and cracked lips. You must wait, write letters, read books of 500 pages, speak softly, don't give up on poetry. There's nobody who would say these days that you should speak softly. <laughs> you know what I mean? At least not in our culture. What do you find so nourishing about this injunction? Well, it's not like I'm against anger. I'm not against any natural reaction to, to um, life. But I do think that when it comes to art, when it comes to writing... I think we shouldn't go with our first impulses all the time as if they were the best ones. I think often our first impulse is to be loud and angry about life's injustices, right? Mm -hmm. Which is justified, but I admire people who can get past that point and say, well, maybe there's a gentler way of saying how I feel. Maybe there's a a softer approach. It doesn't mean that you forget everything. It doesn't mean you forget all your suffering, but it also means that you're not forgetting all the good things. Yeah, there's something really healing in silence where it becomes a kind of, you're no longer young, you know. Revelation must make peace with weeks of Lent. Yeah, I don't know what that means. Weeks of Lent are weeks where you have to fast or go without things, you know, so yeah. you have to make peace with deprivation. Oh, I see. There's no, you can yell at it. What's that going to do? Nothing. Mm. You must wait. What, what, what do we have? What can we do when the universe upsets the balance? We can write letters. We can read books of 500 pages. We can speak softly and we can not give up on poetry. Yeah, it's interesting that he talks about the age, his age there, because I keep thinking, as a younger person, I might not have liked this poem because it's too plain and it's too obvious. It's, yes, it's too subtle and it's... Too subtle and too obvious. It's like, well, yeah, I don't give up on poetry. I mean, duh. <laughs> but that's not duh at all. <laughs> 
I think even poets give up on poetry all the time when yeah. they're writing poems. I think you have to have lived long enough to have wanted to give up. And it makes you wonder also what his definition of poetry is. Is poetry only speaking softly? No. I like this poem a lot. It's called In the Beauty Created by Others. Only in the beauty created by others is there consolation. In the music of others and in others' poems, only others save us, even though solitude tastes like opium. The others are not hell, if you see them early, with their foreheads pure, cleansed by dreams. That is why I wonder what word should be used, he or you. Every he is a betrayal of a certain you. But in return, someone else's poem offers the fidelity of a sober dialogue. Why do you love that? Well, I know, I know that solid because I know that solitude tastes like opium, mm. and yet I'm, that's kind of a cheat because my solid, the solitude for me that tastes like opium is the solitude that is full of books, other people's beauty. In other words, yes, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Only others save us. You know, for a person like me who likes to hide. And um, not converse, not interact. It's a good reminder that... You're not reading your own stuff. <laughs> yeah. like w w The things I love the most in this world all came from elsewhere, obviously. This poem's called Bakery. A young, ambitious baker in a t-shirt. Daubs of flour on his arms like powder on an actor's face. Genially observes his customers. Smiling slightly. He who knows bread's secret. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Again, it's almost nothing. You know, it's like he's so good at getting away with doing none of the quote-unquote poetry moves. Mm. And I know exactly what he's talking about. Even as a child, I remember kind of watching people in stores, you know, people who work at anywhere, like a waiter or a cashier. Mm -hmm. They seemed to know something that I didn't. They They knew... The system, <laughs> some kind of system, and they seemed kind of um, proud, even if they were grumpy or something. There was a certain pride in it and um, nobility. Mm -hmm. I think he's really good at um, seeing the world as not a poet in the sense that he doesn't require everybody else to be artistic. He doesn't require people to be poets. He writes beautifully about other people that are just completely yeah. normal, noble people. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? I mean, of the poems I've read, it's this baker is one of the most uh, inspiring almost. <laughs> For some reason in my mind, it's connected with that you must read books of 500 pages. You know that feeling when you finish a long, great book and you go out into the world and you think, I'm carrying the secret inside of me. Nobody else knows that I just finished, or nobody else knows what beauty lies hidden between these two covers, like mm. gold and a secret treasure chest, you know? Mm. But I know. I've seen it. And it's the same with bread or curtains fluttering. It's like if, if you can get into that mindset where you... Actually experience a thing. You know, Blake says if the doors of perception were cleansed, Everything would appear to man as it is infinite, and we get occasional glimpses of this infinitude. Mm. You know, the, the baker is like full of this quiet, gentle pride that 
he's made a thing well with love, you know? Yeah, and even if not with love, he, he made it and he was there. He was <clears throat> he was present in the moment. He knows that it's a miracle. He doesn't take it for granted. Yeah, that's uh, that's a cool way of looking at it. The people who buy the bread weren't there during the process of making it. Mm -hmm. But he, as the luckiest one behind the counter, mm -hmm. smeared in flour because he was there. It's funny how all the poems, every time we do a podcast, I come to the realization that all poems about are about being in the present. <laughs> I think so. That's why we like them, because don't you think that's why we like them? Mm. For you. Because they remind us that everything, the present, is full of infinity. Mm. This thing that we think we're stuck in, death and time and entropy and decay, poems remind us, oh yeah, that's not true. Mm. Intimations of immortality, Wordsworth called it. You know, we get these little tiny glimpses that that we're not what we think we are, and, and bread is not what we think it is, and novels aren't what we think they are. And I thought about one of your poems today. <laughs> Many of your poems. No, I'm serious. Because <laughs> no, because um, you write about smoke a lot. That's an image in your poetry a lot. Yeah, it's a secret habit I have. Well, it's great. <laughs> No, smoking cigarettes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I was in my art studio. Just kidding. I was down in my art studio and the light was just falling beautifully through the window and I had just blown out a candle. So I watched the smoke for one second and I was completely seduced by it. And I thought, oh, hey, that's Michael's, <laughs> you know, I know that smoke from Michael's poems and I know I'm supposed to pay attention to it. Wow, really? Jeez, gosh, gee, um, looking down, shuffling my feet, blushing. <laughs> so, good job. I, my mother was right. I am special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has this attitude. I think too many, something that is quietly arresting this general theme emerging in our conversation of quietness and softness. There's the gen uh, yeah, and we've been talking about the, the way that poetry is maybe too it's hip to be pompous and bold and self-assertive and dissatisfied or even just glittery not even just pompous and assertive but it's just hip to like dazzle and be glittery and to fill poems you know to kind of be a class clown to fill poems with cool metaphors or dazzling images or weird observations you know what i mean mm -hmm. and it is important to surprise the reader that is true but I get the sense, we were talking about this the other day, I, I get a sense that when Zagayevsky sits down to write a poem, he's not interested in impressing me. I get the sense that he truly believes that if he can kneel down and be quiet for a moment, that he might hear the voice of God or something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the, voice of, the, voice, yeah. the voice of God might be the voice of a baker or a bird or the, the sound of a curtain fluttering, but that this is his way of trying to access something that is transcendent and divine. This isn't his way of getting published in the New Yorker or getting a good resume. The poetry for him is sacred and it's just so, every poem is dripping with this kind of reverential atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So ev even the quote-unquote bad poems, even the poems that you read and you think, mm, that didn't really do anything for me, even those steam with this perfume of, of um, you know, when you walk into a cathedral, you know? This is a place where sacred yeah, things can happen. That, exactly. This It might not be your favorite 
niche or alcove in the cathedral, but it still has that same aura. Even his, uh, e- even the poems that interest me less. It's so true. You know, he's I never. Know with other poems, it's off. I mean, with other poets, it's like, well, the images in this poem are not that great, or there's a cliche here, or but you could never do that with Adam Zagajewski. You I... couldn't say one cathedral is. I don't know. <laughs> Trying too hard to be a cathedral or trying to impress us or not original enough or he's not, well, or more... maybe you can't judge prayers, right? Sincere prayers. You would never. Exactly. No, that's exactly it. Yeah. Of course, that probably takes uh, an intense amount of careful writing probably to um, achieve that because if he was a bad writer, we wouldn't feel that effortless prayer. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm sure it was very hard. I mean, I have no idea exactly how he wrote or how hard it was, but. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, it it sadly takes more than sincerity. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Oscar, Oscar Wilde says all bad poems are sincere. <laughs> and you know what? Like all of Oscar Wilde, he's right. Yeah. He's right. That's so true. I love that. <laughs> but the opposite is also true, you know? All bad poems are sincere, and it's their sincerity that kills them. But all great poems are sincere, and it's their sincerity that truly makes them transcendent. Yeah. Exactly. Sincerity sincerity kills bad poetry because because why? Because it I don't know. I guess it just makes them seem even more clumsy. Because you can already see the mistakes and then they're even more obvious somehow. And tragic. <laughs> Maybe. It turns into sentimentality or I also I really like in Zagajewski that I never get the sense that that he is uh laboring or um I don't know that he's that his greatest goal is to come up with a great image or metaphor. No, I don't get that sense. In Not a at all. lot of poetry, I do get that sense. Even in Keats, I'm like, okay, he really worked hard on that metaphor. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And I, I like that. It's, it's really refreshing. He's completely kind of at ease, or not. That's not true. There is a lot of. I like what you say about the try to, try to praise the mutilated world. You, you must praise it. You should praise it. There is clearly in that poem a palpable sense of dis-ease or yeah. like I, I can't quite bring myself to, sometimes I can bring myself to, I, at least I know I should, but there's palpable tension, you know? So there is often yeah. a similar palpable tension. He, it's, it's not that he's fully at ease, but, but yeah, there's, there is just this all-pervading aura of peace. Hmm. And who knows? Who knows, maybe his, some mm. of his first drafts are extremely angry and cynical, you know what I mean? Could be. And maybe he has to try, maybe he actively tries to find a way to to express himself more softly. I really appreciated learning once that apparently Paul Simon actually is an angry guy. He said mm-hmm. that in an interview. Mm. <laughs> you would never guess he, I mean, if he has one of the gentlest voices I can think of, I mean, Andrea. speaking of speaking softly, right? And mostly happy music. Yeah, that's exactly his lyrics and in the general tone. Yeah, he said that he one of the things he has to constantly work on is to not go with his first impulse of being angry and cynical. And he has to rework his songs to make sure that they're not and some people might criticize that and think, well, he clearly has to express those feelings. But maybe we don't in art. I don't know. I'm not saying you should never express anger or you should never talk about 
injustices. You know, I'm not saying. Well, there's that. that wonderful poem that we both love by Zbigniew Herbert, who was a friend of Zagajewski, fellow Polish poet. Mr. Kajito thinks about suffering, and you know, he says that all the things that promise to relieve us from our suffering don't. He says religion fails us, therapy fails us, breathing exercises, charities for the betterment of stray cats. You know, all these things. That, <laughs> We put our efforts into this and this, thinking that it will give us some relief from our suffering, but nothing works. Our suffering is kind of permanent. He says, you have to consent. You have to bow your head. You have to say yes. Mm. And then he says, you can coax from your suffering a smile like you would from a sick child, you know. Oh, right. Tell it a joke. Tell your suffering a joke. So oh, yeah. it's not about ignoring it or not being honest about your suffering, but it's about having an attitude towards it that isn't like, well, I'll just express it and it'll. if I express my anger, it'll go away. It won't. <laughs> you know, it's not going to. You can speak you, softly despite of your anger. You can, he says, the beginning of Herbert says, play with it. You know, just be kind of gentle. We all feel rage when we hear about children who are terminally ill. But what do you do when you walk into those those hospital rooms? You... You try to make them laugh. You know, it's like there's really one last option left. That's it. That's all you can do. Right. You don't pretend like it's not happening, but... Maybe this poem slightly relates. This is Zagajewski's poem. Oh, yeah. Letter from a Reader. Should I read it? Yeah. Letter from a Reader. So this is a kind of invented reader speaking, I suppose. Too much about death. Too many shadows. Write about life, an average day, the yearning for order. Take the school bell as your model of moderation, even scholarship. Too much death, too much dark radiance. Take a look, crowds packed in cramped stadiums sing hymns of hatred. Too much music, too little harmony, peace, reason. Write about those moments when friendship's footbridges seem more enduring than despair. Write about love. Long evenings, the dawn, the trees, about the endless patience of the light. I love this poem. It's amazing. Because you're not sure if he's the one talking to himself. You know what I mean? It's certainly both. It could be um, a critic or critics, right? Honestly. Poetry, or I'm, himself and himself. If he is responding to like a bunch of feedback he gets, maybe readers are really writing in in, the, in this general sense or maybe at readings he and q and a's that he has to give you know maybe people are saying to him you're you're just too much of a downer honestly i think that those are bad readers unattentive readers his poems are full of light and happiness and I the know. dawn and trees and light i know it's so true but i like what you say that this could be him talking to himself like there could be some garbage can in his apartment that's full of these angry despairing poems and he's trying to tell himself like like you got to you got to get out of that mind space. Yeah, you got to try to speak softly. You can't give up on poetry. You have to try to praise the mutilated world. You have every reason to write about death and decay and despair. We all have every reason to do that. But what it's about? It's easier because it's everywhere, and you have it. All those images so readily available, and it can be very seductive to just wallow, right? And all-consuming, you know. Yeah. But what about the endless patience of the light? Gorgeous. I love that image so much. So good. The what, what, you have another one? This poem is so good, I immediately 
sent it to my dad in Germany. I texted it to him. That's usually what happens when I find a great poem. And he had never heard of this poet. That's crazy. So I'm happy I introduced him. It's called The Soul. We know we're not allowed to use your name. We know you're inexpressible, anemic, frail, and suspect for mysterious offenses as a child. We know that you are not allowed to live now in music or in trees at sunset. We know, or at least we've been told, that you do not exist at all, anywhere. And yet we still keep hearing your weary voice in an echo, a complaint in the letters we receive from Antigone in the Greek desert. Yeah, it's very beautiful. In other words, the postmodern cynical nihilists won't ever win because the soul can't be shut up. Even a fictional person thousands of years ago in the desert still reaches us. Even fictional souls are real. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, It's amazing. We still keep hearing your weary voice. We uh, weeping over her dead brother's soul, who is dead but still has a soul because she wants to mm -hmm. give him a proper funeral. One more? I can't tell if this is a sad poem or a happy poem, so you tell me what you think. Okay. It's called, I Walked Through the Medieval Town. I walked through the medieval town in the evening or at dawn. I was very young or rather old. I didn't have a watch or a calendar. Only my stubborn blood measured the endless expanse. I could begin life, mine or not mine, over. Everything seemed easy. Apartment windows were partway open, other fates ajar. It was spring or early summer, warm walls, air soft as an orange rind. I was very young or rather old. I could choose. I could live. Gorgeous poem. <laughs> That's amazing. It speaks to me in a way, I don't know, I mean... His most famous poems are probably Tried to Praise the Mutilated World. He has a long poem called To Go to Lvov, which is astounding. It's also one of his most famous poems. Something tells me this won't ever become one of his most famous, but it speaks to me in a really special way. I could choose. I could live. I know. <laughs> I, I think he perfectly portrayed what it feels like to have that rare glimpse of I am in the moment. I am right now completely present. And strangely, that is how it feels when you're completely present, when you feel completely alive. You you are every one, every age, every place, and every time you have ever experienced somehow at the same time, mm -hmm. even though you are in the present. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not living in the past only. It's not dreaming of the future only it's it's everything at once that's how it feels at least for me a sudden unexpected gust of happiness yeah it is so weird i know i keep saying that <laughs> when you're having a specific experience and you are aware that you're having that experience as it's happening it becomes strangely so abstract too like he's describing it might have been morning Having an ex a specific experience that you're completely aware of, you also have this incredible sense of how abstract it all is. What, do you, what a, do you mean by abstract? Well, have you never felt 
a rare glimpse of happiness and thought, that time or age or place doesn't actually matter that much and you're sort of everywhere at once. I have. So being in the moment is actually being in the everything. <laughs> yeah. Infinity, timeless. It's being taken out of time. Yeah. What do you think? Does this poem seem to be about a rare moment of happiness, but it's almost elegiac in, and mournful in the way that this, it was in the past. This moment isn't here anymore. It was so brief. I could choose. I could live. Long ago, this one moment in which I felt free and <laughs> it never came again. When you oh, read this, when you hear this. Yeah, it's like that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you know, when there's that really heartbreaking, heartbreaking moment where they say, wasn't there a moment? Where we, we, we could have said no to all this. Yeah, maybe it's a, something <laughs> similar. But when you read this, do you want to weep for joy or sorrow? Kind no, a, it's a mix. It's absolutely bittersweet. Yeah, I think as all perfect moments are, and as all great poems are, wouldn't you say all great poems have to contain some kind of alternate spices? Emerson says the rifle will have its kickback. You know, he has that wonderful essay, Compensation, in which he talks about how all things are a kind of fusion of opposites, including, I think, great poetry. So yeah. bittersweet is. There's, no, there's not going to be a great poem that is only sweet or only bitter. And I would be willing to bet large sums of money that most great poems offer us both in a kind of y relationship of yin-yang. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's not, sorry. No, you can finish your thought. Well, it's not, there's yin in the poem and there's yang. There's sweetness and there's bitterness. But <laughs> it's as if they're kind of the same. I could choose, I could live. It's like same. they're both yeah. fused intimately together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I also have wondered, I, I know that's what everybody always says about poems that are abstract, but it does feel like a dream. It does, yeah. And I wonder if it is. It could, have be, it could be a memory or a dream. Hmm. I was young, but maybe I wasn't as young as I thought when this happened, or in my dream. Yeah, maybe in my dream I could choose, I could live, but in real life you can't <laughs> choose. And then I woke up. In real life you... You get exiled from your home country. Yeah, or in real life, you don't get the choice. You are born. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whether you want to live or not. <laughs> Same for death. So run, don't walk to your nearest bookstore to get Without End by Zagajewski. He has many, many books of poems. This is a kind of selected, new and selected book of poems. It's a good place to start. Yeah, he's, he's very easy to imitate if you're a writer. All you have to do is... Um, uh -huh. <laughs> Be a genius. <laughs> yeah. Connect with God. Don't try too hard. <laughs> and yet sacrifice your whole life to trying. Make each poem a faultless prayer. <laughs> no, we have a lot to learn from him. Mostly I do. <laughs> Why not me? <laughs> well, you're better at this. <laughs> you think I've learned? You think I've no, learned? No, you are better at this. You actually are very good at writing. At speaking softly in your poetry, I often want to crack these cynical jokes all the time. And they can be amazing to read, but I would like to practice more, write poetry instead of, with a capital P, <laughs> instead of little sarcastic slash funny poems. You're saying my mother was right? I am amazing? <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> no, don't say that about your poems. That's, no, no, this that's was not, not an, an invitation for you to. I know that you object, don't. But that, I know that you don't give out such invitations. But think about your new album, listeners out there all around the world. If you want the musical equivalent of these poems, you should go listen to the Insomniac Songbook. It's exactly what it is. You say you can't do this, or you say that you haven't learned these lessons, but your new album begs to differ. Well, I thank you very much for that. <laughs> Just kidding. Oh, I, I do have to say that it was very much like that poem, Try to Praise the Mutilated World. I had to keep resisting all my strong urges to make darker music. I really had to. And I love dark music. But with this specific album, I really, really was trying to tap into the lovely, calming mm. atmosphere that Brian Eno also is so good at. It it takes work, real work. So I admire that he achieves, it, that uh, Zagajewski achieves it so well. Don't you think that we should probably shut up? But mm -hmm. Wait, what are you saying? I should shut up? Not at all. <laughs> I don't mean shut up, I mean speak softly. <laughs> don't you think don't you think one of the key ingredients and this has come up in previous podcasts, but the fatal error is trying too hard to impress. Oh yeah. If your goal is to look cool or to be impressive or to win prizes or to get attention, it's like Sagaevsky I mean, I don't know anything about his internal psychology, but He's like, wait. I think actually I, I, another story that was told to me by this colleague of mine, former student of his, was that his poem to go to Lvov was so famous. It became it became such a famous poem that Zagajewski's friends and family and acquaintances would often, to an annoyingly degree, to an annoying degree, say to him, "You should write another poem like that." Oh, it's like a long. It's like a very long catalog-driven kind of climactic. It's like the ode to joy of his poems it's like very it's really dazzling it's really quite dazzling and they'd say to him you should write another poem like that which yeah your reaction is appropriate it's like <laughs> it's a really horrible thing to say it is yeah it's a really horrible thing like, oh, what you're working on now doesn't mean anything i don't like your new stuff you know basically i know <laughs> but um so i guess what i'm trying to say is that he could have listened to them and he could have said you know what they're right i want to make them happy i want to impress them I want to maintain my reputation as a dazzler and just write another kind of ode to joy and then another and then another. But he said, you can smell no, that every time. you can smell that out. That's exactly right. If you read a poem whose motivation was that, readers can tell, you know, they can tell, oh, he just wants. It's as if you you can kind of hear Zagajewski going in like Christ's asks us to do, going into his closet, closing the door, doing all of this kind of in his own way, for his own reasons, in his own intense and very passionate softness. He doesn't care if we are impressed. Mm. Or if he's topical. Yeah. <laughs> or if you can dance to it, it makes good mosh pit poetry. Or if you're, you can insult people with it. <laughs> yeah. All your anger gets validated. It fits onto a placard that you can go to the latest riot with. The end. Mm -hmm. We will return, won't we? Yeah. Who knows when, who knows where, who knows why. 